or a smartphone, some device, you'll be looking at the scriptures with us this morning. I will be in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. I've been working through Colossians now for the last several weeks, um, moving through this letter that Paul has written to the church in Colossae from prison, a church that he hasn't met, a church that he didn't plant, um, but he's ministering and encouraging them, um, sending this letter back. It's mostly a very positive, encouraging letter with some warnings mixed in. Um, Colossae is, a, is a, a community, not a big city, but it had a major thoroughfare through it, and so lots of um, ideas, uh, people, influences that were kind of constantly traveling through. And because of that, the, the danger of false teaching was, was prevalent. And so he's been warning them um, as to, to how to deal with false teaching, but also just trying to anchor them in the truths of who Jesus is and the, and the teaching that they've received and that they've heard. Um, really, it's, um, it's a good reminder for us, because even though maybe we don't live on a main thoroughfare through America, um, really the Internet is the main thoroughfare, right? As information comes that the, the exposure that you once maybe had to have in a cosmopolitan place to be really to hear from all the different thoughts and ideas from around the world, we now have that right at the click of a button, right on, on our keyboard, on our computer, on our phone, that we just have access to all sorts of different thoughts, topics, ideas, and teachings. And listen, in no regard are we saying that information is bad, right? But that there was a warning that Paul has for them that we can be led astray, that we can drift away from truth by, by promises that are ultimately empty, right? By persuasive speech that actually doesn't hold to anything significant. And so this morning, as we think about Colossae um, and, and the false teachers that have emerged, right? We know that in general, um, there's not perceived false teachers in Pampa that we need to warn you about, although there's false teaching, right? but it's more that we have access to all of these ideas and all these thoughts, and that Paul is encouraging not just the church at Colossae, but us this morning of being anchored in the truth that has come from God. Okay, And so we're going to pick up in verse 8 of chapter 2. Let me remind, actually we'll just read verses 6 and 7 as well as they, we ended there last week and we'll, we'll pick up the argument this week. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? That's, that's our anchor, right? that we are rooted in these truths of Jesus, established, continue to walk in them. Church in Colossae, church in Pampa. Verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive, captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God." who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over, over them in him. So this morning, as we kind of read this, again, Paul in, in, in the letter to the Colossians, it's just kind of a stirring letter that can be flowery, that can be powerful, that can be moving. Um, and, and yet, in verse 8, we see a warning. Right? He, will, he warns them, See to it that no one takes you captive, right? that no one leads you astray by, by thoughts and teaching. And he's going to give us some insight into what this can look like. He says, I don't want you to be taken captive right, by something that is built on deceit, on empty deceit. Because in verse 5 of chapter 1, we're reminded that the gospel from God is this, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So he's comparing and contrasting. Listen, there's a, a message out there that is deceitful, right? It's lacking, and you've already received truth. And so he's wanting them to see what the false teaching, this information is going to be deceitful in that it lacks the truth, but that it's built on deceit. Listen, Scripture warns us often um, that we are, we are able to be deceived. Right? The, the deceit isn't just for those other people. It's for all of us. In Ephesians 4.22 Right, it tells us that our desires can be deceiving. Right? The things that we, we long for and want can deceive us into following a path that we shouldn't go. In Hebrews chapter 3, um, verse 13, we're reminded that, that sin itself is deceitful. The author writes this, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you, he's writing to the church here, may be hardened, by the deceitfulness of sin. In 1 Timothy 6, we're reminded that, that the desire to be rich, not riches itself, but the desire for wealth, can lead to being deceived, right? Into traps and, and, and turmoil and, and difficulty. In both 1 Peter 5, 8, and in 2 Timothy 2, we're reminded that the devil's goal is to deceive us. Like That's what he's trying to do. This is the is Second Thessalonians two, verse ten. Um, I'll start in verse nine. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with wicked deception for those who are who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. First Tim or First Peter five tells us that the devil is roaring and prowling around looking to destroy us. And so we have an enemy who wants to deceive you, to destroy you. Um, sometimes it's with things that would make you go very far from the truth, and sometimes it would be just to muddy the water enough that you wouldn't trust Jesus and would live maybe a moral and good life and think that is sufficient. But that we are prone to being deceived, right? By sin, by money, by our desires, by an enemy. And so he's telling them, listen, a false teaching is going to be built not on truth, it's going to be built on deceit, and so we have to be careful here. He continues, it's not just built on deceit, but it's built on man. Um, according to human tradition, we see in verse 8. Verses, all of chapter 1, right, which the gospel is being told, it's from God, it's been given by God, it's the story of God. This um, false teaching that's being presented to them 
is built on deceit and it's built on the tradition of man. It's been thought up in the heart and the mind of man. It's not pointing back to God. It's pointing to man. So this is also deceit. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders and authorities. And He's saying, listen, you have taken the desires and the, the commandments of God and you have put more emphasis on the tradition of man. It's a, it's a, it's a damning statement that He tells them. He says, listen, you, you, know, you say you're keeping the law, but in fact, you're not doing that. Whether it's with... Um, Food. He's like, you think that food can corrupt, but I'm telling you it's the things that come out of you that corrupt you, not the things that go into you. In verse 6 and 7, he says this, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And so he gives the examples of, of hand-washing, of honoring your parents, and of food laws, and says you've twisted all of these and made them more about you than about God. And so what Paul is writing here is this. He's like, listen, there's false teaching. It's built on deceit. It's built on the traditions of man, which can also deceive. And then he says this. It's empty. Look again at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. If you look back at verses 2 and 3, we've been reminded that what we are offered in Jesus is everything. Listen, he says, I want you to be knit together, in verse 2, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He's like, I want you to have these riches. Verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so again, he is comparing and contrasting that the gospel comes with this full awareness and understanding of Jesus, um, a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge of understanding versus the empty deceit, the empty lies, the empty tradition of man. Right? It's fruitless. That you could, you could follow it for a while and it's not going to pay off. There's nothing um, bolstering it. It's hollow. And so he's asking us to compare the promises of God and go, okay, can you find a promise of God that hasn't been kept, that hasn't been met, right? If, if so, then we have an issue. But he's like, the promises of God have come true. They've come to fulfillment. And because of that, we can trust those that are yet to be, that are talking about the future, that he has always kept his word. Versus this deceit that's built on lies, that's built on tradition, that's empty and will not keep its promises. Church, we can be reminded of this in this day and age, right? When we think about um, politicians, right, who make promises that aren't kept, right? And how disheartening that is and how, um, how aggravating that is. And yet here we have God saying, here are my promises, I've kept them all. Here's the Holy Spirit as a down payment for the promises that are yet to have been fulfilled because I have yet to come back that they will be. That everything I've said would happen has happened. Like He's keeping His promises. And so He's asking us to compare and to contrast, to check what is being taught. What is it that we're listening to? And is it pointing to the things of God? Or is it pointing to the tradition of man? Are promises being kept? Are promises being broken? Where are we putting our hope? He continues um, in verse 8. So no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. He's not 
um, dissing philosophy here. Philosophy is just this idea that they're, it's, a, it's a group of thinking that they have. According to human tradition, and then he says this, according to the elemental spirits of the world. The elemental spirits um, could really mean one of a couple, couple different things, and maybe what Paul is really doing is trying to help us understand that it's both. It can mean just kind of the building blocks um, of the world, right? Where people have worshipped the sun or the moon or nature, right? It's these elemental building blocks of the way the world works that cuts God out and just worships part of the creation rather than the creator. It can be the elemental spirits that there are enemy spirits, right? That there are demons and, and Satan who are out there looking to deceive. And he's saying that these philosophies, these empty ideas and teachings are actually being led and guided to deceive you by the demonic. And it can also just be the elemental parts of culture that begin to, to be built up that become barriers to your belief in Jesus. Right? These would be things in different cultures that would make you hard to walk away, not just from persecution, but, but deep-rooted elemental beliefs that we have. So listen, for West Texas, it would be this, is that we, we have equated goodness with the gospel. And so we think if you're mostly kind, if you're mostly moral, right, that that must mean what Jesus means. But, but right, like trust in Jesus is that we have been rescued by Him and that we're giving our, our, our worship to Him. That we have submitted ourselves not to our way of doing things, but to His way of doing things. And simply being polite in society is not the gospel. And yet the elemental part of our culture has so blended the two, right, that there are folks walking around believing they have trusted Jesus who don't know Jesus. Right? They're being deceived. And so sometimes you'll hear people talk, we have to help people see they're not saved so that they can hear the gospel for the first time. That we've grown up in an area that's so baptized culturally that sometimes people miss Jesus entirely. So this is, he says, I don't want you to be deceived. I don't want you to be captive. I don't want you to be building something that's based on man, that's based on you, that's empty, that's taking part of the elemental um, spirits of the age. The false teachers are claiming, hey, Jesus isn't sufficient. He's not enough. There's something more that you need. You need other experiences. And what Paul is reminding us here is that Jesus is quite exclusive. He's saying, no, no, you need me, and that other is not sufficient. It's not enough. It's not good. You need me. Let's continue. Look at verse 9. So it says, um, sorry, one, one, one more thought on verse 8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive. This idea is that you have become enslaved, that you've been taken off as almost like a prize in war. And what we know about um, ourselves is that what we feed grows. And that works both in healthy ways and in unhealthy ways. That if you begin to, to swallow some line of thought or teaching, hook, line, and sinker, Right? You can be taken captive by that. So your appreciation for it can grow even if it's false, even if it's empty, even if it's deceiving. Um, Carmen and I knew uh, a family in, in Yemen who's, uh, it was a German family. Um, their kids were kidnapped and taken off by um, a, a rogue group, and they were found a couple years later, not speaking a word of, of German, only speaking Arabic. Right? and had kind of had come in full, they were young, and so they now, as they had become captives, 
they no longer really saw themselves as captives at that point, right? They'd been so entrenched in just that world, right? And so even though that's a drastic way of thinking about it, we can do that um, with, with ways of thinking, with philosophy, with ideas, with teaching, that we become so entrenched in an idea that the things that we once knew and would have called family, that would have felt close, that would have felt right, can now feel foreign and wrong, and we're entrenched in this false idea. And so he says, church, don't be taken captive. Don't be deceived. Don't be led astray by these things, but be reminded of who Jesus is and what is not coming true, what is not being fulfilled in these false arguments. And so he kind of lays that out to, to anchor us and to warn us, and then he puts the spotlight on Jesus. Pick up in verse 9. He says it's not, those teachings are simply, as he ends verse 8, are not according to Christ. Like they're not built on Him. Verse 9, for in Him, meaning in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him who is the head of all rule and authority. He is simply reminding them, Jesus is God. He is. And so He's over everything else. And so what is it that you're going to go to that's going to gain you something above Jesus when He is the ruler, the creator of it all? He's not just a representative of God. He is God. There's nothing more that you could long for or desire than Him. Who is it that you would go to? And so He tells us right, that He is filled with the fullness of deity. In verse 10, And you have been filled in Him. Right? We have been filled in Him. We've been given the Holy Spirit. Right? It's why Jesus told the disciples, it's better for me to leave, because you're going to get the indwelling Spirit. You've been given access to God through prayer. Right? That we have full access to the throne room of grace. That we've been promised that we'll never be alone, that we'll never be forsaken. That we're given a seat at the table as an adopted son or daughter belonging to the King. Like, so he's saying, listen, look at Jesus he is God. He's done this work and He's filled you. Like, what more do you want? What more do you need? You have Him who is the ruler of all authority. So He gives a couple of examples of these benefits. Verse 11 In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hand. Right, so he brings up this idea of circumcision, which goes back to Genesis 17, a sign of, of the nation of Israel, a sign of a covenant with God, a sign of entering into relationship with God for those in Israel and those who wanted to be a part was circumcision. Right, A, a painful um, surgery that was performed on a, a boy at eight, eight days old right, or older if you came in as a non-Jew. Right? It was meant to be an outward sign, though, of something internal that was going on. Right? We know that it was not just an outward sign and that that was sufficient. It was meant to point to a more internal thing that God was doing. Listen to a couple passages out of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Right? So this is written in saying, hey, yes, I've given you circumcision as a sign of the covenant, but it's not just your body that needs to be circumcised, it's your heart that needs to be circumcised. Again, if we turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, we say this, we see this, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart 
and the heart of your offspring, so that you'll love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Right? So again, this is not just a New Testament idea. The Old Testament intent of circumcision was to be an outward sign, right? It was revealing something that had occurred internally, that our hearts had been tuned to God, that our, our sin and, and our, our, our enslavement to this world had been cut away, that we were submitting to Him. Jeremiah talks about the same thing in chapter 4. And in chapter 9 even, he'll say this, hey, I'm going to come and bring judgment against those nations who are circumcised only in the skin. Right? Like God is saying, you can be circumcised and not please me. Because what I want is your heart to be circumcised. I want your submission. I want your, your devotion. I want you. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2. Verses 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And so what Paul is saying here to the church in Colossae is like, you needed this difficult thing to happen. You needed a circumcision that it happened not just to your body, but that happened to your heart. And so look at what he says here in verse 11. So in Him, meaning in Jesus, you, the church at Colossae, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So he's immediately telling them, this wasn't done at birth, this wasn't done to, to fit you into a religion, it wasn't done by man, by hands, but by the circumcision of Christ. What he's taken us to is the cross. Right, and the imagery here is, is, is hard and is bloody and it's, it's, it's broken. Right, but it, that at the cross, Jesus' flesh was beat and it was stripped and it was painful and it was agonizing and it was shameful. Right, all of these things happening as Jesus is mocked and humiliated and beaten and crushed and, and, and crucified. He says, listen, in that moment, as the, as the flesh was stripped away. That was happening on your behalf. Right? Like it was happening for you. So that that wouldn't have to be you. That the wrath of God would not be poured out on you. That you would not be stripped. That you would not be beaten. That you would not be mocked. That you would not be humiliated. That your shame would not be on you. That it was being poured out on Jesus. And so, because of that circumcision of Jesus, he's like, now there's a circumcision that happens internally in you. That you let it lay aside the old way of life that's enslaved and marked by sin. And it's removed from you so that you would have a new heart placed within you, one that's stamped with the law. There's one that's stamped with Jesus and is devoted to Him. But listen, to, to walk away from the things of this world to follow in Jesus, we ask the question, um, is it necessary? Do I really have to do that? You can imagine being circumcised physically and going, do I really have to do that? That seems painful. That seems unnecessary. That seems difficult. I would rather not. And in submitting to Jesus, often we're saying the same things. Is it necessary? That seems painful. It seems difficult. I kind of think I would rather not. Because it means dying 
to ourselves. It means laying aside who we are and the things that we're enslaved to and the things that we are deceived by and the things that we want. It is a painful stripping of our old nature so that the dead would be gone, that we would be alive in Christ. And he's saying, church in Colossae, this has happened already for you. Like Jesus has already purchased this for you. He's already been crushed for you. His circumcision is yours. And so you've died to yourself to live in Christ. Right? So if this has happened, like what is it that God will not have for you? He's reminding them, you are anchored in the truth that Jesus has filled you, and this is what Jesus was willing to do to restore you to the Father and to let you know that you are loved by God. Verse 12, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And so he goes from talking about um, circumcision to talking about baptism and resurrection. So what he says is, listen, you've, you've not just been circumcised and left the old to gain the new. You've been buried and you're alive. Like Resurrection hope is your hope. And it's why we have the picture of baptism that we do. Right? That is, we're standing there in the water before the church. We're saying, the old is, was here. A life apart from Jesus is here. That I was warring against God. I was an enemy of God deserving of death. And then, as I go into the water, I am dying to myself. The crucifixion of my, my spirit is happening. Right? And I'm now buried with Jesus in the likeness of His death. And then as we're raised out of the water, right? I'm now raised having been circumcised spiritually in Christ. Now listen, that is not happening in the water. That is a symbol of what God has already done inwardly and spiritually to us. That we needed redemption. We needed a stripping away. We needed a cutting off. And so we then show people that's who I was. And now because of Jesus, I'm now covered in the Spirit. I'm covered in Christ. I belong to Him. And so death, right, is no longer the enemy that it was. It has lost its bitter sting. And so we mourn like those, right, differently than those without hope. We don't want death, right, but we know that death makes our faith sight. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so we have been raised now. And so for those of you who are in Christ this morning, who have been filled with Him, who have been circumcised by Him, right? death doesn't have a hold on you anymore. The enemy has been crushed and defeated in eternity with Jesus is where you're headed. Right? You are a resurrected being right? headed towards resurrection for eternity. That's who we are in Christ. That we are dead to our sins. Right? We're no longer enslaved to the passions of this world because we have been circumcised and we have submitted ourselves to Jesus. That so we are a new creation in Him. So He continues. Not just that you've been circumcised spiritually. Not just that you've been baptized to, to be raised to walk in new life. He continues. In the end of verse 13, God made alive together with Him having forgiven us of all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. 
This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He's just reminding them, listen, don't be taken captive. Look at what God has done for you. Look at the truth of this, right? the riches of it. And then he simply reminds them, you're alive because you've been forgiven. Right? You have hope because you've been forgiven of your trespasses. Notice the word all in verse 13. Forgiven us of all of our trespasses. Some of you this morning believe there are some sins that maybe just aren't forgivable. Things that you've thought, things that you've done, things that you've said. Right, things that you don't even right, like even having this conversation makes you go, oh no, like it's coming back up. That thought, that darkness, that pain that I've, I've tried to stuff away. And what he says is this: is that you have been forgiven of all of your sins, of all of your trespasses. He's canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Right, this idea that we're in a law room before God, and the accuser, our enemy, who's seeking to devour and to destroy you, is standing there going, Jeremy Buck, arrogant. Jeremy Buck, right? And he just starts going down the list of all the things I've said, I've thought, I've done. And he's screaming and looking at me, guilty. Guilty. You think you can stand before God? Guilty. Accusing me. Right? Listen to Revelation 12, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. We have an accuser who even now, for some of you, is attempting to deceive you, to say this hope isn't for you. Your sin is too much. It's too big. It's too ugly. Like He's trying to tell you that and accuse you that God can't love you, that God can't forgive you, and He's a liar. He's wrong. That in Christ, right, we are forgiven, and there is hope, and it's not because you have cleaned yourself up. It's not because you've done all the things. There's no hoops for you to jump through. It is a gift of God in Christ. Not based on your merit. Not so that you can boast. It is a gift to be received. And so He says, He has counted He is canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He is shutting up the devil and saying, you have no right to accuse them because they're innocent. How are they innocent? Because Jesus has taken the shame, the guilt, the the, the wrath of God has been stripped away, and now they are covered in Christ. They are innocent and they are pure because of Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. How do we know that? He set aside and nailed it to the cross. He's saying your sins are nailed to the cross with Jesus. Like it is being paid for there. And so you have one of two options. You will stand before God someday, and it will be said of you, their sins were nailed to the cross in Jesus. They are covered in Christ. Come in. Welcome. Enter good and faithful servant. Or it will be said of you, you still hold them. They're yours. And you will be guilty. And you will spend eternity separated from God in torment because you did not receive a free offer of grace from Him. Verse 15. 
He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The cross looked like defeat and said it was a triumph. Right? Like they could have easily killed Jesus in private, in secret. They wanted to triumph. They wanted to silence this one who was overthrowing right, the religious system, who was making the Jews nervous, who was making Rome nervous and going, hey, he's just another one of those guys. And so they put it out to shut people up and to silence the, the beginnings of the church. Right? And it looked like defeat. It looked like loss. We see the disciples in fear huddled up until Jesus right, is resurrected and shows up before them and says, like, why are you here? I told you. Like, I told you this was going to happen. Right? And they, they begin to see right, their faith became sight. And the cross was not a moment of defeat. It was a moment of triumph where the enemies in their pride thought, we win, and they lose. Because in their attempt, right, you think about any like, action movie you've ever seen, right, where you're like, man, if the bad guy would just shut up talking, he would win. Right? But he gets so busy talking, so busy doing, so busy screaming, so busy showing his pride and his arrogance and his motivation, that then the, the good guy wins right, and is able to have enough time to untie himself or have enough time to figure it out. And they win. They put Jesus on display to mock him and humiliate him. And in that was their defeat. Because victory was won, and it was won publicly. And there is triumph because Jesus walked out of the grave. And now he has built a family around him of all who were once his enemies and are now his sons and daughters. Right? With no longer having any, right, being enslaved to sin, no longer having to fear the work of the enemy because we've been filled with Jesus. And listen, we live in a strange place right now where we're still affected by sin and, and, and the enemy still prowls looking to destroy and to deceive. But we are headed to where we belong where there will be no hint of that for eternity. Our shame that could have been displayed at the cross was, but it was displayed in Jesus and not in us. Why Scripture would say you have to lose your life to find it. I like that we have our ways stripped away to find life in Jesus, to find hope, and to find peace. We have been freed from sin and guilt. We have been freed from the power of the enemy to enslave. So the question, and we'll end with this this morning, is this. What, it's what Paul is asking the church at Colossae. It's what we're asking of one another this morning. What is it that you're soaking in? What is it that you're meditating on? What is it that you're diving into and pursuing? Because if it's, if it's the Word of God, if it's passages like Colossians 2, right, you're being rooted and deepened and anchored in Jesus. And the circumstances of this world will try like they might. They will not shake you. And it's not because you're so strong, it's because of Jesus. But listen, if we are being taken captive by empty promises, by deceit, right? And there are a lot of voices out there trying to do that. Right? The media, different, right? On, on all different sides, right? We're not are offering something and saying there's hope in these things and there's not. There's hope in Jesus. And there's hope not just for eternity of where we're headed. There's hope now that we can be built on a strong foundation. And so it's why 
Paul is writing to the church in Colossae saying, listen, Rome rules right now. And yet Rome is not as strong as they think because God is ruler. He is king. And this is a, the church is a subversive thing. For the glory of God and for the good of those around them, they would no longer be deceived. They would see truth. They would see treasure. They would see wisdom. They would see hope. And it would be found in Jesus. So the question then is this, is do we have eyes to see it? And if we eyes to see it, are we pursuing it? We're asking the Lord, God, if we don't know You, would You rescue us? Would You give us eyes to see? And then for those of us who do, that we would not be swayed by all the noise and all the, the, all the shouting for our attention that would be rooted deep in the Word of God. Finding the wisdom, treasure, trove that is. Let's pray. Father, we confess that, that often we can know the right answer. We can know truth, and yet we can get bogged down by lies, by deceit, by things that glitter but aren't gold, by things that offer ease or comfort that they cannot begin to deliver on. Lord, even Hebrews reminds us that there is a fleeting pleasure of sin. It's just not lasting. God, this morning, would you... Um, reveal in our hearts and our minds through your Spirit if there are voices that have taken up too much residence in us. God, what those are, that we would not be taken captive by them any longer. God, that we would feed, we would feed on your Word and see it grow in us, to anchor us, to grow us, to secure us, to establish us. That we would be a Psalm 1 man or woman for your glory. It would be a beacon to draw others to the hope and truth of who that is found in you. Lord, would we not run from Colossians 2 too quickly and move on and be discipled by other voices this week? But would we allow it to soak into us, your spirit to speak to us, and for you to grow us? In Jesus' name.